Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll read a portion of the chapter. We read the entirety of it last week. Um, but we realize that many of you were missing last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 25 and following. I'm sorry, verse 24 and following through to the end of the chapter. I'm going to try to stay on task this morning. I actually have notes. Isn't that scary? So I actually have notes this morning, so I'm going to try to really press. When I have notes, it means that you're in trouble. (laughs) I usually um, am able to get them all in my Bible. I have a wide margin Bible. I put my own small notes in. But um, when I have to have two other little pagers, oh boy. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll begin reading verse 24 to the end of the chapter. I'll bring out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin... She is, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So that he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as Her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Lord God, we thank you. The last phrase in the hymn we just sung, Living for Jesus, my life I give henceforth to live, for Christ and Him alone. And uh, a fitting introduction to what we want to discuss this morning. We uh, spent some time last week working through some basic principles of a theology of singleness. 
that are found um, here in 1 Corinthians 7 most extensively out of anywhere in the Scriptures. It is recorded now and again. And of course, Christ Himself addressed it uh, with His disciples always in the context, though, of marriage. And we find the same here. We find that many are out there developing a theology of marriage, and, uh, but not a lot being done on the theology of singleness. Where do we derive it from? What is, should be our attitudes towards it? And uh, if there's any time period of mankind where it needs more work, it is in these days. And by that, I mean these days as in the nearness of the coming of Christ. In these days in which we have all sorts of perversions being promoted as natural. And in these days uh, in which we find in general a generation that is wandering and really has no great goals that they have set for themselves. I say, Pastor, how can you say that? Well, um, listen to a few graduation speeches and you figure it out very soon. You can see them online, by the way, all the APS ones, from all of our best and brightest that APS has can produce. And you will discover a very great lack of purpose. We deserve it because we are. Instead of we will work hard now to earn what needs to what we desire, whether it be society's accolades or respect. And so we live in the age of entitlement, and the Bible has a very different view of it. What we are entitled to, we find in God's Word, is to be death and judgment. What we are entitled to is the misery that accompanies sin. And so we find this pattern in God's Word of self-denial, which is denying our entitlements, if such exist, among our country, our culture, and rather seeking out Christ. And that is going to be foundational to our discussion on singleness. And we're going to review a little bit very quickly. For those of you who weren't here last week, and there was a great number of you, and then there are some that were here last week that aren't here today, um, I hope you get the CDs or get the podcasts and to hear the full account. Um, but essentially, we looked at First Corinthians chapter 7, and we found this phrase repeated over and over again, it is good. It is good. Paul felt that there was something that was the best for mankind. And he starts off with the, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, and that doesn't refer just to any casual contact uh, in terms of a handshake or something like that, but something more substantial. And then we find that it is good down in verse 9. Um, I'm sorry, verse 8. And uh, for them to remain even as I am, referring to his singleness of Paul, that this is good. We find it again reiterated for us uh, in verse 26. This is good. It is good for a man to remain as he is. We have contentment in our current circumstances. 
And again and again, we have this statement, it is good, referring to singleness. And I hope we can let that impress upon us the nature of Paul's message. That when we confront this, it is not that, well, poor person, that's the best they could do. But rather, it is good, should be our response to this. And so we looked at several of the principles And I want to rehearse these principles that are aligned with each of the statements. It is good. It is good because when a man is able to live out his life without a wife or a sexual act, we find that it is a representation of self-control. And we know that self-control is a godly character quality. It is part of the fruit of the Spirit that God gives us is self-control. And so we see it as an opportunity to demonstrate our dependence upon God and our mastery over our flesh. Therefore, it is good. We found also it is good um, because it is a gift of God. It is something that God has distributed to some and that in that condition, it is to be viewed as some of a blessing that God gives to men. We find that in verse 7. I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And we often, as we said last week, see the wife being given a godly wife as a gift from God, but so also is the ability to remain single a gift from God. And we're going to look at that more closely today as well. Uh, the third uh, principle that we saw last week was it is good because of the troubles in the flesh and the troubles of the times. It is because of, and in Paul's circumstance, we don't know what was going on in Corinth at the time in that city, but he describes a great distress that was going on, uh, whether that refers to the distress of the current age, the church age, or of the whole church, or of just that specific time and specific place, There's some discussion about, but it is obvious later on in two statements that he makes that he refers this to the entire church age, and that is with regard to um, all of us have troubles in the flesh, and that it's going to be multiplied because now you're going to have troubles not only of your own flesh, but somebody else's too. It's going to be doubled. And so Paul says, I want to spare you that trouble of the flesh, And I also want to recognize that our time is short. That there's a brevity to life and there's a brevity to the church age that demands of us more than maybe the standard of what our culture deems acceptable or best. So we see this principle at work that because of the rigors of marriage and there are rigors involved in being married, at least if you're going to be successful at it. Lots of rigors. Um, and by the way, in terms of the distress of the time, the shortness of the hour, and the trouble in the flesh, um, people say, well, what are you referring to exactly? Um, is, is a wife really that much of a hardship on me? Um, for some men, yes, because they've chosen poorly. Um, but what I really refer to uh, if there is anything that uh, endangers my testimony the most, in terms of if I were to confront blatant physical persecution, 
it would be with regard to my family. Not to my own life, but to the life of my wife and children. And I found myself several times as I was studying this out, looking at that aspect of it, is that I might be uh, very unwilling to deny Christ to spare my life, but when it came to the safety of my wife and children, uh, would I be as ready to hold fast the word of truth? And I pray that I would be able to, but it creates the very real danger that that love for them can surpass my love for Christ. And so Paul says, I want to spare you all that. And if you don't think that was a reality in that age, you haven't read much of church history. As just a few years from this point of the writing of Corinthians, Christians were being turned in by their own family members. Uh, they were being persecuted severely. They were being burned um, to, as torches to light Roman festivals. They were being fed to lions. Uh, they were being massacred wherever they could be found. So Paul's insistence here um, is related to that, and we should anticipate the same in our age. And then lastly, we found also that uh, because with, in singleness, the other principle of singleness is that now all of our time and energies and resources are, can be committed to the things of the Lord in verse 32. Um, we, he wants us to be without care. He wants unmarried, cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. And it is a singularity to our capacity to, to serve the Lord when we are single. And that hymn that we sang, that I, my life I give henceforth to live, O Christ, for Thee alone, is really, honestly, only able to be fully implemented in your life if you are a single person. Because the fact is, is that my wife has a claim on my life. And that's going to be taught as we get into the theology of marriage um, in the next few weeks. And so we're, as we're going to confront that here in 1 Corinthians 7. And so when Paul says, you know, without care, now you are able to serve the Lord and the Lord alone. And so these four principles, Paul lays down of why it is good for a man to remain single. It is good. It is not something to look frowned upon. It is not something to be considered uh, 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 secondary or second class, but rather that it is maybe even what is best for us in this age, in this time. Now, having said that, oh, I better go Lord in prayer. We haven't prayed yet. That's my introduction from last week, a little review. Let's pray. And now I'm going to get into some issues of what I hear from people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for what uh, your word has declared to us. And we thank you for its truth. And Lord, we depend upon you, not only for these scriptures before us, but for your spirit within us to open up our hearts and minds to the understanding of it. And then, Lord, that we might have opportunity to surrender ourselves to it. Lord, we pray for your protection during this time. We often think of protection of while we're traveling from injury or from persecution. But Lord, this is the greatest protection we need. We need protection from error. And we trust your Holy Spirit to provide that today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, 
having presented those principles, I obviously skirted several verses along the way, which are the verses that everyone seems to know better than the context of everything else in this chapter. And those are the verses that seem to imply at the forefront that perhaps this is all um, just um, Paul's preference. That is, that this is just because this is a single guy trying to kind of promote his own lifestyle. And that if Paul ever fell in love and got married, he'd change his whole tune. That somehow this is just what he had in his mind at the time. Uh, And this is not necessarily God's word. Let's look at a few of those verses that I skipped last week. And then we're going to go back into the principles, hopefully with a renewed vigor for what they really do teach. We begin with verse 6 where people say, oh, he is obviously making it evident that this is just his opinion with verse 6 where he says, but this, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Obviously, we are not commanding anyone to be single. But the concession he's referring to is not singleness. The concession he's referring to is marriage. That is, marriage is the secondary choice. It is the thing we'll put up with. We'll tolerate you getting married, okay? It's not best, but we'll tolerate it in this church. Oh, that we would have that kind of... As the attitude Paul had, the concession he's speaking of is not a concession to people to do what they want. He's conceding the fact that, unfortunately, within the body of saints, there are those who cannot exercise enough self-control in this area that they need and need. That's the important word. Need to get married. What you want isn't relevant here. And by the way, for the believer, what you want isn't relative hardly ever. It's what Christ wants that should be what drives you. My life I give henceforth to live for Christ and Him alone. That means that my wants no longer have a necessity about them. And so those that need this because of their lack of self-control, Paul says, I'll concede to that. And and, uh, uh, do we look down on them? No, we shouldn't look down on them. We should understand that God ordained this. God designed it. And God certainly uh, honors it. Um, But Paul is saying, listen, uh, this is a concession. And the concession is not being single. It is... Marriage as the secondary choice to avoid immorality, not the preferred one. As the preferred choice should be to be able to be single and control ourselves. But a secondary choice that Paul concedes to is, well, if you have to get married, go ahead. Verse 7 comes to the next statement that people say, well, this obviously means that Paul um, uh, recognizes that this is just his own whim. And that is in verse 7 where he says, I wish. (laughs) And we come to that word, I wish, and uh, we think about uh, shooting stars and blowing out candles, right? This is just uh, fanciful desire. Um, This is just the imagination. Uh, And so when Paul says, uh, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, uh, this is just his fanciful interest, and, and, and we lump it in with that category. And therefore, it has no real bearing on us today. Uh, let me take you to Romans chapter 10. 
Romans chapter 10, just so you can give a context of some other things that Paul wished. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, here's what Paul wished. See if this just sounds like fanciful thinking. My brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Essentially, the first word there is linked to this whole idea of I wish. Paul's desire, his heart's desire for Israel is that they would be saved. And he prays for that. Is that just some fanciful personal interest that he has, a whim that he has? Because, after all, he's the Jew of Jews and he was raised the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Um, and therefore, he has this cultural and blood connection to the people of Israel. And therefore, he just wishes they'd all get saved. No, it is much more substantial than that. The statement revolves around the idea that pastors in general should have as their heart's desire God's best for His people. And God's best for Israel was that they all be saved. And Paul looked at their circumstances, saw that they had a great zeal for God, but didn't have a knowledge of Him. And he says, oh, I would trade my salvation if all of them could get saved. Well, he comes now to the church in Corinth and he relates yet another wish. Not just empty, uh, foolish desire, but heartfelt, driven not by his own whims or his own circumstances, but rather by his knowledge of the times, his knowledge of men, his knowledge of God. He wants God's best for those that he has ministry toward. And so he promotes this position, not um, lightly or not as um, for his culture only or for that people in Corinth only or for that day only, but as a genuine opportunity to develop the church uh, in a particular element within the church to God's glory. He wanted God's best for them. We jump also to verse 25, and here's yet another verse that I have seen others use to say, well, certainly none of this information here really has power or authority with regard to the church or to me. Here's where they... So now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. You see... He doesn't have a commandment from the Lord with regard to this area. This is a reference specifically to the direct teaching of Christ. Uh, earlier, he said in verse 10, To the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Uh, a wife is to depart from her own husband. And so we have a direct teaching from Christ regarding that. We looked at that last week in Matthew, um, the presentation that this is not to happen. Now, with regard to um, virgins particularly, Paul says, you know what, I don't have anything directly from the Lord in terms of His direct teaching in this manner. Um, yet, and we always stop and forget the yet. Yet, I have something to say. And I have the authority to say that. 
Paul says, I've got the, I, I, I am a, I'm giving a judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. And either we recognize that all of God's Word is inspired or we start shredding this book. What Paul here says isn't that this is just, oh, this is something that you can just ignore. This is just kind of me wandering in my thoughts. And I actually had commentators write to that degree. That this isn't really binding or authoritative Scripture. This is just Paul's wandering thoughts. Nonsense. As soon as we say that of one portion of Scripture, any portion of Scripture can be disregarded. Paul makes it very clear. I'm coming to you, not with thus said Jesus Christ while He was on earth, but rather, here's what the Spirit of God has impressed upon my heart and mind and life under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that what I am about to say has authority. And so he directs them. And yes, he starts off with the word, I suppose, which isn't very a strong word in verse 26. But he starts with his weakest argument and he builds. He says, okay, let's start with the weakest reason. I suppose. This is good because of the present distress. Okay, that's the weakest, and he's going to start building into the strongest statements later on in the chapter um, regarding your service to God. But overall, the entirety of his message is one given to Paul by God and shared with us. And we need to treat it with the authority that it carries. The judgment of Paul, um, remember, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The judgment of Paul is not to be lightly discarded. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 19 that we studied last week that the agency, human agency was involved. He would leave it up to them. And that is the disciples, remember, said, uh, you know, if this is the way it is with married people, it's better not to get married. And Jesus' statement is, well, not everyone can handle that. Not everyone you know, can accept that teaching. Um, and then he referred to that some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs by men, some are made eunuchs by themselves, by their own hand. And so he, he refers to that idea that it's really up to human agency. Jesus isn't going to give a command that you should not get married. He doesn't do that. But here's the judgment of one of the apostles looking at the circumstances within the church and his statement is, if you want what is good, remain single. It is not to be looked down upon. It is not to be uh, ridiculed. It is not a disease that needs to be fixed. It is good for all those reasons. And so as we go through this, there's one other verse, by the way, in verse 35 that I've heard used and read used um, to say, oh, I can be excused from holding this is very important. And this I say for your own profit, that I may, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And again, they say, oh, you see how weak his statement is. It is for your own profit. It is proper. It is not a leash. This sets a basis for relieving the married from believing they are sinners or second-class Christians. He's making this statement really, to help those who are married or are going to get married. You know, it doesn't make you second class in the kingdom of God. 
You know, we're not binding you up in this. We are simply saying, have you given serious consideration and evaluation as individuals and as a body of saints to God's perspective on singleness? That it is a preferred state given the arguments that Paul shares here in this chapter. Obviously, we cannot make the declaration that you should not get married if you need to. That is a sign of a false teacher. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, one of the things they were doing was forbidding people to get married. We will not do that. As Jesus left it up to human agency, so we do. The difficulty is that we have been applying social pressure to people to get married, our young people particularly. What's wrong with you? Why are you still single? Let's be honest. That's the attitude of our society. And it is not God's. It should not be the church's. And it should not happen in our homes. So not, we do not forbid them from marrying, but neither do we pressure them into marrying. In fact, if anything, we should be applying some pressure to avoid marriage, even as Paul does in this chapter. Take your time, and my kids have heard it all. Take your time. The worst, thing, the worst, decision, the worst decision you can make in your life as a Christian is to marry the wrong man. I have four daughters, okay, or a woman. That's also worse decision for guys it's the worst one take your time if the right one's out there you'll find them uh, no pressure in fact don't even look for them they're already looking for you that's what i tell my gals don't go looking for a man they're already looking for you relax and recognize that perhaps the greatest service you can do to god you can do alone So, I would love to line up all the people whose marriages, who felt that maybe I married the wrong person, and let them testify to all of our singles and unmarried, our young people. Um, but I'm afraid some of the actually married people might know I'm not. <laughs> Brethren, it is time within the church that we stopped relegating singleness to the area of a problem. And start viewing it as God does, as a blessing, as a gift. And so I want to take a few minutes. I only have 20 left here. Um, I've done review and I've done people's objections saying that this chapter is not authoritative. Um, and that is just foolhardy. Now I want to take some time to develop something about our singleness. Um, some issues and our single. Your single. I'm married. Sorry. I'm not horribly sorry. I must have really needed it. I'm weak, people. I'm weak. At least I was. Number one, we talked about exercising self-control. And here's what we think that means. That means that if I have any interest in the opposite sex, therefore I must not have the gift of singleness. And if that were true, number one would not be necessary. Paul here does not say, I am single because I have no interest in the opposite sex at all. 
He is single because he has come to that point of dependence upon God that he can exercise self-control and he can bring that area under subjection to his will and the will of God and can pour his energies into something else. If disinterest in the opposite sex was required for singleness, then why would self-control be necessary? So don't think, well, I, I like girls. That means I shouldn't be single. No, not true. Well, I like guys. I, should, I definitely don't have the gift of singleness. Not true. Rid your mind of that philosophy because it is humanistic. It is animalistic. It means that if I have the interest, the desire for it, if I have the capacity to lust after that, therefore I must do it. And this is the world's teaching. It comes right out of evolutionary thought that somehow you are just sophisticated animals and therefore you must follow your animalistic ways. But we are not. All of you came dressed again today because you're not animals. You are moral, conscious beings that recognize I have the capacity to control myself. We are not driven by instincts. I think I told our young people, I think I only know of one instinct in man when they're born, and that is to suck. After that, everything else is learned. We make choices. We develop. And one of those choices is to control ourselves. And so the idea that, and I hear these people come to me and and single individuals saying, I don't have that gift because I like girls. I'm like, that has nothing to do with it. Now I want to share with you what it means to understand the gift of God in terms of singleness. Um, First of all, it is to be discovered and put to God's use the same way other gifts of God are discovered and put to God's use. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. We could also go there. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Um, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another working miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. But one of the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So, we have the distrib- distribution of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, no list in the Bible is exhaustive. That is, nowhere do we have a comprehensive list of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so all those spiritual inventory tests that I took in college to help me discern my gift um, are off base because they are all limited in having this narrow view that if it's not specifically stated in God's Word, it's not a gift. And interestingly enough, if I followed all the giftedness exams that I took and inventories that I was forced into um, in various classes in college and seminary, um, I would not be here today. 
because I am not gifted, according to them, to be your pastor. Because I contend that all of those inventories, all they measure is your natural abilities and not your spiritual ones. In fact, what I find is that my spiritual gifts are particularly from God. That is, they go counter to my natural abilities. You know what my natural ability is? I could do very well sitting in a little cubicle and crunching numbers all day. I would be a great accountant. Getting up front and talking to people and having to deal with all your problems, that is not what I am able to do. But I am gifted to do it. In fact, I would contend that if it is truly the gift of the Holy Spirit, it will be outside of your talent zone. And in the, So why? Why? Because then it becomes not me, but it is God who gets the glory. If I'm doing it according to my own capacities, to my own abilities, I will take credit. And that's the danger that's out there. Is we have a lot of eloquent guys who are out there and, and doing this. Um, and we say they are greatly talented. Um, and they get the glory. And so when we look at this area of giftedness and identifying gifts, you say, well, so it's not necessarily something that I lean towards exactly. I would never have leaned toward being a pastor. Now, I have sensed God's leading in my life since I was 10 years old to go into the ministry. And I avoided any ministry plans that would involve me getting in front of people and preaching. And so, and that wasn't just when I was 12 and 13. That's all the way into college and seminary. I was going to avoid doing what I'm doing right now <laughs> and have been doing for 20 years. I was going to go be a medical doctor. I was going to go serve God in a mission field some way. But as long as I didn't have to get up and preach, but God had a different plan. Because his giftedness was beyond my abilities so that he would get the glory. And so when I hear individuals say, I don't have the gift of God because I like girls, um, they have totally misunderstood what it means to discover the gifts of God. It is well outside of your natural desires. In fact, it will often go contrary to your natural desires. And that's the whole point that Paul declares that if you can't exercise self-control, then you have necessity to get married. And that implies that the person who wants to remain single still has those desires, but can put those desires under the wraps and control themselves. And for those people, God says it is best for you. It is God's gift for you to be able to serve Him in that capacity. And so because it is a gift of God, it is not to be despised. Because it is a gift of God, it is to be discovered and put to God's use. And this is the next issue that I have to address, is that it is put to God's use and not your own. Well, that's my next point in my outline, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go there yet. We're going to come back to that. Let's go on. The Bible also talks about remaining 
in the state that you are in when you are saved. Aren't you glad I don't have PowerPoint because now I can just kind of flow and change my mind right now when I'm going to do something. If I was on PowerPoint, I'd have to do the next slide no matter what. Praise God. See, technology is evil. Just remember that. Got that, David? Okay. So, remain in the state in which you were called. Referring to your salvation was one of the principles that Paul lays out here, um, not only for the uh, singles, but for the married, and that's going to be brought out in our theology of marriage in the next couple of weeks. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look into that. But uh, the whole idea here is that um, that when God calls you to into His service, into His walk, into His family, that there's understanding that you don't need anything else to serve Him but that calling. That once you are a believer, you are automatically entered into the job pool of God. You have responsibilities there. There's no further uh, things that need to happen in your life. Well, when I can get married, then I can serve the Lord more. Um, no. Not necessarily. In fact, quite contrary. Uh, Paul makes it very clear that when we come into Christ, uh, contentment should characterize us that I'm content with what I am, who I am, because now I'm in Christ. And that makes everything else a little less important compared to my relationship with God. Because I have this right, everything horizontal in my life um, can be made right. And I can receive it with contentment. I can learn to be abased. I can learn to be abound. I can, I can low in every circumstance. I can be content. This is Paul's statement. Whether I'm hungry, whether I'm tired, whether I'm full, um, whether I'm well-rested, uh, and anywhere in between, I can be content. And he presents that principle here in terms of our married lives or unmarried lives. In terms of our horizontal relationships, he tells us you should have contentment. That if you are in the state of singleness, you should be content with that, which means I'm not looking. That's what contentment looks like, folks. If you are single today, uh, contentment with God and with His work in your life is to say, I'm not looking. I'm, I'm not looking. I'm not pursuing uh, those relationships. I'm not, I'm not anxious about them. They are not driving me. But rather, I am content with who I am in Christ and Again, we have the reasons that are listed here. We find that contentment with your current circumstances is godliness. And thus we are told, he gives a list of things, circumcision, he gives a list of things, whether you are a slave or a free. And um, most of us are slaves in this day still, just like it was back then in the church. Um, you didn't know that? Yeah, if you're in debt, you're someone's slave. Few of you are free. So whatever condition you came to Christ, it says remain in that one. Let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called, verse 24. And he applies that basic principle 
to our sexuality and says, listen, if you're a virgin, just stay that way. There are some great benefits to it. And we can look at the benefits of marriage, but there are also some hazards out there in marriage. In our day and age, the hazards often today outweigh the benefits. I wish it weren't so, but the fact remains that that is still the case as it was in Paul's day. And so remain. Be content there. Enjoy it. And I do not mean by enjoying it, and now we get to the point I was going to talk about later, about indulging yourself in it. We find, as we have read already, that he wants us to be without care, verse 32 and following. Verse 33 says, He who is married cares about things of this world, how he may please his wife. But we go back to verse 32. Let's look at how he says it. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for himself. And that's the way most single people live. By the way, if you're reading, trying to find that, it's not there. I made that up. What does verse 32 say? He who is unmarried cares for what? Come on, class. Things of the Lord. And I want to contend with you, you can be just as unusable to God as a single person as um, if you invest yourself only in worldly things that you're not sharing with a spouse. You're just doing them for yourself. If you're going to have without care of this world, that means now you have an opportunity to invest all of my resources in the things of the Lord. When those resources aren't necessarily just time, but more importantly, all of your money. All, no, no, I, all, I, miss, I reversed those, sorry. Not just all your money, but all your time and all of your energies. That we would give those to the Lord, not to ourselves. And I find that among singles individuals, we think, well, they automatically can do these things, but they won't. Just as there is still innate in them that desire for those earthly relationships, so there is that selfishness that they must contend with. Paul here says, I'm going to lay it all out. I count anything that's to my credit as dung, as garbage, as manure for Christ. I'll set it all aside. I put away my own safety, my own health, All of that I will set aside to serve God. And he could do that as a single individual. Does that mean that every single Christian does do that? No. What we find instead is that most in the church use their singleness and the available resources that is theirs in singleness to serve themselves. Singleness is godly when it concerns itself for the things of God, not for self-indulgence. When we look at the homosexual community, it is amazing how much money and time and effort they are putting towards their interests. And so when you have two Men together, both with full-time jobs, no kids, and the only thing that is driving them is self-interest. No wonder they have so much time and money and energy to drive their 
issue. And let there be no mistake, that is what's going on. And why the homosexual agenda has been thrust to the forefront time and time and time again is they have the resources and they're willing to expend those resources for their interests, which is the homosexual cause. And brethren, you're never going to hear me say this very often, it's time we learn something from them. It's time that we started expending the resources of our single individuals on the interests of our Lord instead of on ourselves. What do you need? What does a single person need to live? And Paul makes that very clear here. Let's look at it. You got I, I, as a married man, have to be concerned of the things of this world. I need to provide housing. I need to provide utilities. I need to take, have food for my family. Uh, they need to be clothed because you guys would really freak out if we didn't have them. And um, so I have to concern myself with the things of the world. I don't like to, but I have to. I got sometimes 8, 10, 12 mouths to feed. It's crazy at my house. I never know. Every meal we have to prepare like gobs of food just in case 15 people come over. And that's okay. We like it that way. I'm not complaining, by the way. Um, but it means you've got to prepare enough food or have an extra potato ready to throw in the pot. Um, that's okay. What does a single person need? Truly. And Paul is a great evidence of that. We find him going out. Like Christ, and Christ's declaration is, I don't have a place to lay down my head tonight. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> and I know some of you guys, when you're single, and uh, some of you still are, that, uh, yeah, I can go live in my car. Yep, because you don't have to face a wife in the morning. But instead of expending our resources on the things of God, we're expending them on ourselves. All those extra resources that are available to us of our time and our energies, of our material resources, and instead of living frugally and living simply as Paul did, making enough just to earn his way so that he could serve the Lord with every other ounce of his time and energy and means we find ourselves expending them on ourselves. Expending them on fanciful living that isn't honoring to God. And so the contention is that you should be living for the Lord. You should be caring about the things of the Lord. How to be holy both in your body and your spirit, he says. How you can please the Lord. And that should be the expression of godly singleness. So I want us to be warned this morning in all the promotion of singleness that I've done last week and this week so that we can hold it as something good, as a gift of God, and not as a disease that needs to be healed. Um, we view it as a benefit to the church and not a detriment to the church. As we view it as something that is godly, we must also recognize that it can just as easily be abused as the marriage relationship. 
It can be used for ourselves as much as anything else. And so it doesn't automatically mean, well, single people are more godly. No, they have the capacity of serving God to a greater degree, but that capacity is limited by their holiness, by their faith, and by their self-denial. Paul is going to make a great argument about the fact that a man can't deny his wife and the wife can't deny her husband. And so that respect I have to share Christ with uh, to share myself with Christ and my wife and my children but when you have no one else that you must share yourself with you can either choose to share with the Lord or just indulge yourself and brethren there's great danger there that I am simply here to entertain myself. And all of these are ways to avoid loneliness, which is absurd. For Christ is with you, and in the service of Christ, you will rarely find yourself lonesome. Because i got to tell you something, you probably don't know this, um, but there's a lot of people out there that need help. Real help. We can self, we can wallow in self-pity. Poor me, I'm all alone. Or we can recognize I'm never alone. If I am my Lord's, my Lord's is mine. And now I'm going to go serve Him with all that I am and all that I have. And I'm going to spend very little, if anything, on me. A few years ago, we were able to buy a house to assist a family. And it was the first time I really ran into this in, to such a degree that uh, shook me a little bit. Walked into this man's house. There was one chair, one set of dishes, a radio, a bed. This was a three-bedroom house. That was it. Single man. Been single all his life. And his statement was, everything else I give for the Lord. And he was serving the Lord faithfully in his local church. And he was perhaps one of the first men I'd ever met who was genuinely living what Paul's teaching here in Corinthians. He lived with absolute simplicity so that he could serve the Lord with absolute dedication. There was a magazine that goes around and has people empty out their homes in their front porch and takes a picture of all their possessions. They do this all over the world. It's easy to do in most parts of the world where they can usually get the family around the possessions. In America, you have to put the possessions around the family. If you're going to live your singleness for God, I would contend that you're going to have to change your way of life. Because the American lifestyle is not conducive to serving God. 
That's true for married couples as well. We can certainly, certainly reduce ourselves significantly. But in singleness, what do I really need? And how much of a benefit can I be to the kingdom of God? How much can I serve him? pastor can't do this stuff. He's got a family to take care of. But I don't. What can I do? When we start having that mentality, there is no time for poor me, I don't have a wife. Poor me, I'm all alone without a husband. Poor me. We're going to have one more week on singleness because we're going to talk about dads and daughters at the end of this chapter. And my message really is to all of our past, all of our pastors, all of our parents with regard to what you are communicating to your children. But I want to make sure we understand that the principles have to be applied if you're going to be a godly single. Because you can just as easily be ungodly in your singleness as a Christian, carnal in your singleness, as any married person can be. So apply these principles, but discover that gift and don't rule it out simply because you like boys. That's not good enough. Because you like girls. It's not good enough, guys. Don't rule out this gift of God because of your natural inclinations. Consider, what can the Spirit do with me? When all I'm living for is Him.